Blog Talk Radio. Well, hello. It is uh, June 21st, and uh, this is Ursula Pottinger, and I'm here with my good friend and uh, business partner, Anne Betts. And we are going to talk about sleep and dreaming, and uh, we also have with us today uh, Will Sharon, and Anne is going to introduce Will in just a moment. Um, The title of our show is To Sleep, Perchance to Dream. (laughs) A fascinating look at what happens when we sleep from the rationalist neuroscience view to the magic of dreams. (laughs) So welcome, everybody. Well, Anne, (laughs) say more about Will, and then I uh, I want to go to the rationalist view. (laughs) The rationalist view. Well, you know, so welcome, Will. We're we're going to put Will on hold for just a little bit and actually let him introduce himself in a bit. But um, just for for full transparency, Will, Will is my partner. And um, we, not my business partner, that would be Ursula, so <laughs> my other kind of partner. Um, and, and what's been fascinating for me is to learn about the magic of dreams, because Will is an expert on dreams and the soul. So we're going to let him talk more about himself in a little bit. But, you know, there was such an interesting for me, convergence in all of this, because at Be Above Leadership, what we're really interested in is not just the, you know, nailing everything down and making it all mechanistic in terms of this is what the chemicals in your brain are doing, et cetera, and that's that's who we are. We don't believe that. Um, But yet there's been something fascinating. And if you've known us for a while, you know that we actually didn't start out in neuroscience. We started out in consciousness. And then when we discovered neuroscience about seven years ago, it added a robustness and a flavor and a um, language that enhanced our understanding of consciousness and even enlightenment. Is that fair to say, Ursula? Yeah, that is that is fair to do, fair to say, and I I love what you're saying because it's uh, for me what it has done. It has given me um, uh, some direction, some groundedness, and also um, some evidence, at least in certain areas of the brain, because the brain is a beautiful and complicated mess. In some areas, the evidence is irrefutable, and in some areas, not so much. But it has given me and us a glimpse in um, how could this be explained. And then there's always this addition of, you know, the more questions and the yes, and there is more. Exactly, and I like to say this was a phrase I learned when I was a philosophy undergraduate, necessary but not sufficient. And mm-hmm. so I, I, sort of how we hold neuroscience kind of necessary, or you could say interesting, but not sufficient. And so, you know, in talking with Will about this and realizing there's some things that we know and we teach about sleep, we're going to go into that next, but that the function of dreams had never really been anything we've looked at from a neuroscience perspective. And um, the, so we started looking into, well, what does the science say about that? And there's not a lot. So we're going to talk a bit about the various perspectives here today. But let's start with why do we need to sleep? And I think that this was an area that, for me, having the kind of rational understanding of 
sleep as a function of learning and memory and really critical, it takes it out of a moral conversation like it's either right or wrong. You know, and there's some people who say, you know, you should sleep a lot. There's some people who say, oh, you should, you're sleeping your life away and you'll be more productive if you sleep five hours. And it kind of, you know, being able to understand there are some mechanisms that are happening that can only happen in the brain when we are asleep was really interesting to me and helpful. Yeah, I I agree. Um, and as you know, and sleep is uh, one of my uh, one of my, has always been not always, but certainly in the last ten years, been one of my biggest challenges. And then knowing what happens in the brain during sleep, you know how the brain consolidates memories, etc. It's given me a greater focus on at least putting some structures into place so I can sleep yeah. decently. Um, so why yeah. don't you um, tell us a little bit about what happens from a neuroscience perspective in the brain when we sleep because it's really fascinating. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's been true for me as well. Now that I know it's important, I make more of an effort to get it. We came into to really looking at sleep from the perspective of neuroplasticity, which is the brain's ability to change and grow. And as coaches and you know people in the human growth and development field, I'm really interested in other people's change and growth. You know, that's what they come to me for is the ability to make new habits, to um, embrace new beliefs. And we started seeing that if certain critical factors weren't in place and sleep is one of them, the ability to make this change is really compromised. And now what we're going to talk about with Will is maybe also if we're not dreaming, that may be compromised as well. Mm-hmm. So here's the here's kind of the basics that we know happen during sleep. And by the way, the research that we've been able to see says that adults need seven to nine hours of sleep. Whenever I share this in my corporate work, <laughs> I always have to I always have to tell them, okay, because people will say, well, how much sleep do you need? And I always want to say, like, you're not going to like the answer. Yeah, <laughs> right. More than. More than you probably want to do. Kids, teenagers in particular, I just read this really interesting thing, just a little rabbit trail if you don't mind. Teenagers need about nine. And here's one of the interesting things I didn't know is their melatonin, which puts this hormone that is going to put us to sleep, they start producing that about two hours later than children and adults. So whereas an adult might start getting tired 9, 30, 10, or depending on your own cycle, it's really normal that a teen doesn't start getting tired until like 11 p.m. And then with early you know, and that makes time, sorry, yeah. to in, sorry to no, interrupt, uh, and, and that makes complete sense to me. You know, having raised uh, two kids um, with, you know, five years age difference, there was such a difference of the older child going to sleep and wanting to sleep than the younger one. And I think very often teenagers get a bad rep for staying up so late. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's, it's part of what's happening, you know, biologically for them. Um, we'd have to have a different call to talk about why that is. So at any rate, we need this seven to nine hours because what, of, uh, what we need it for is, is not as much for our bodies to rest, but for our brains to rest and process. And we think part of the, you know, big piece of the processing then is, is going to be taking place in what are we dreaming. 
But it's the mm-hmm. three things that we've been able to find, the three or four, that happen during sleep, according to the research, are neural connections that we've made during the day or, you know, maybe even longer than that particular day, get, re-indiv- get, re- get traced, they get revisited and reinforced. So we're going back over what we've learned, and one of the things that they've found to be, you know, in terms of like study habits, is you're far better off spacing out your studying so that you can sleep in between, get this traced and reinforced, rather than trying to cram right before a test. Isn't that Mm -hmm. interesting? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's a big piece to memory and you had something that you found about this. So we know it, things get consolidated. Memories get consolidated. Mm-hmm. Emotions get reorganized. Things get pruned. Synapses that, that have fired during the day, the brain sort of literally says, well, what do I need and what do I not need? And the reason for this, uh, Will and I were talking earlier about the analogy of pruning a bush. You prune a bush so that parts that are not getting to the light can grow. You prune things back so that other things can be stronger. And that's very much true in our brain, that the brain is saying, I don't need this piece, I need, but so I can have more energy going to the others. And then what did you find, Ursula, I thought this was really interesting, about this memory piece? Uh, so it's, you know, memory consolidation. Um, and, you know, again, what I notice if I don't get enough sleep is that really I have a hard time accessing information. So during my sleep cycles when I don't get enough sleep, that part where the brain really uh, looks at what has been happening during the day, consolidates it, and also gets rid of unneeded, you know, not needed information. When that gets lost, you, my brain doesn't function. <laughs> Get a little fuzzy, and yeah, it and gets fuzzy. About during the day, part of the part of our episodic memory, just sort of what we're experiencing during the day, is really living in the hippocampus. Um, and then at night, it gets one of the things that can happen is it gets consolidated into the neocortex. So it's literally kind of moving to a different place in the brain. We also know that our emotions get reorganized and that if you disrupt sleep cycle or people that are, you know, there's, where there's a sleep deprivation, it really alters the emotional processing, which is, and this is associated with reduced prefrontal cortex function. The prefrontal cortex mm-hmm. is, we think of as kind of the executive director of the brain and is kind of, in, you know, uh, making good decisions, things like that. And, and when sleep deprivation occurs, people can really have severe impacts to their um, regulation of emotional processing. And what happens is neutral, things that are neutral get processed as negative. And talk about, you know, not assuming positive intent or blaming people or things like that. You can see this with people. Oh, really? I didn't know that. So things that are neutral get processed as negative? Yes. When Wow. Yep. Sleep deprivation resulted in similar processing of neutral and negative distractors, thus disabling accurate emotional discrimination. So this is this piece that when you've got a good night's sleep, you sort of go, oh, it's no big deal. You can tell, Mm -hmm. is it a big deal or isn't it a big deal? Sleep deprivation, everything looks like a big deal. 
Mm-hmm. So the third piece is clearing. And mm-hmm. this is this waste removal system. It's part of the um, uh, glymphatic system. This is the, bla- the brain's glial cells work on this, so they call it the glymphatic system. And there's a toxic protein that accumulates during the day called beta amyloid um, in our brain tissue. And one of the things they found is that people with Alzheimer's tend to have a lot of beta amyloid. And so we know that there's something going on in sleep where certain cells are shrinking, cerebral spinal fluid is moving through the brain and it's clearing out this beta amyloid, sort of, you know, the trash collectors coming through through the streets getting rid of toxicity. And that has a real ability, real um, link to our ability to think and remember and um, make good decisions, et cetera. So that's what's Mm. happening with sleep. What about that? Anything you want to add? That is, um, well, um, I've just uh, read a little piece about, and this is studies in animals, so, you know, how true this is for human beings, I am not sure, but this is fascinating in itself. Um, They have found that animals during sleep, the neural activity of the hippocampus replays the events of the day. And this replay happens faster than real time and sometimes happens in reverse. Oh, you know, and again, and we're going to segue into, again, give Will a chance to talk now that we've done the yes. science, because this faster and in reverse, that mm-hmm. may have some connection to why dreams can be so odd. May or may yeah, not. Really, so <laughs> weird. <laughs> anyway, I want to introduce Will. Will is an expert on dreams. He's been working with dreams his whole life. He's a coach who specializes in working with dreams in terms of helping us understand more of what our soul is trying to say. So welcome, Will. Oh, thank you. Thank you both for having me here. Um, you know, it's very interesting in terms of neuroscience and, and dreams. It feels, you know, when you, when you look at the history of both, it feels in some way they're coming from the opposite ends of the spectrum. But, you know, as, a, as we've had conversations, there are elements particularly as you were describing, you know, the pruning of, of the, the metaphor of pruning of a, a shrub, there are elements that sort of play into understanding how a dream actually materializes in the mind. And one of the things that you were talking, I'm, I'm reminded of, is that uh, the soul is a pack rat. The soul will use everything, right? So you go to the Brooklyn Botanical Gardens and you see a lily and it shows up in your dream not the way you saw it when you went to the Brooklyn Botanical Gardens, but that flower or flowers in general may have a charge for you in some way. And so, you know, Netflix is my source. It's like I'll watch something and somewhere a character from a movie or something that I've watched will appear in a dream more often than not. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, so. you know, uh, you know, this example of the other, the other night I, um, I had, I have not, uh, was visiting my son and we were talking about my um, ex-brother-in-law um, and uh, who has become trans- transgender, has come out as transgender and now is my ex-sister-in-law. And, and I hadn't thought about her for a long, long time and I was just sharing this with Will and then, goodness knows, she showed up in my dream. And that's so, that's so fascinating. This is not a person who's really in my consciousness very much, but played a really interesting role in this dream. And I love how you say the soul is a pack rat. It's like, oh, here's a character. Let's just give her something to do. Is that a fair way of putting it? <laughs> yeah, and I think a lot of times, you know, 
when we when we dream about you know an ex lover or or some kind of relationship that went south, it's generally not about that person. I mean, it's it's using the the personality of that person, but usually it's more about us and some kind of um, some kind of awareness that's trying to be surfaced in us. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I can tell you a little bit of disguise. There's there's a young woman who's an artist and um, ended a relationship because the guy basically wouldn't commit, having repetitive dreams of over and over asking him and him saying no, et cetera, et cetera. And at the same time, she happened to look at her sketchbook during the time she was in the relationship and during and since it ended. And the the quality of the work is is extreme. I mean, initially it was not formed, not finished, and now it is. Mm-hmm. So is that because it was a, quote, bad relationship? Well, perhaps, but more importantly, it's really about her masculine energy and the mm-hmm. dream basically saying, you know, you're not really committing. You're starting to, mm-hmm. but this was an issue in your work, in your internal process. So we use, mm-hmm. you know, we, we will use what's available. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes we will use, you know, what Jung called the collective unconscious. Sometimes we will bring in, you know, if, if sort of if the soul says, okay, they're not getting this, then, then we'll use other imagery. But more often than not, we'll use our own, something that's happened in our own life. You mean like well, and, and I place like the, like Arch- like Arch- yeah. Well, no, no, go Arch- ahead, Arch- Ed. Go ahead. Go ahead. We both have. We have two questions. We're so fascinated. Okay, so <laughs> you mean so? I think sometimes people, you know, think well, you know, that you can get these dream books, and you know, this is what you know cats mean, and this is what mm-hmm. you know men mean, mm-hmm. and beds, and all of that. Right. And right. so you're you're saying there's a well, you say sort of like. That can be interesting, but it's not the go-to place. The go-to place is the person's experience or your own experience. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things we're talking about here. One is one is relating the dream, the dreamer and the listener. But you know, it, it, what's interesting, and this will digress for a moment, sort of into the coaching world. Um, my sense is one of the reasons that that coaches haven't used this. Number one is they're not exposed to it in their own training, but. You know, Carl Jung is is a hundred thousand blessings and one curse. And the one curse is he was a, he was a genius. You know, he was brilliant. And people, you know, anybody who sort of looks at a little bit of his work goes, oh boy, you know, that's not for me. Um, but the fact of the matter is, there's a real simplicity. Uh, mm. There's a real simplicity and power in coaching, in the sense that what do we do? We ask questions. Mm. We are present and we ask questions. And one of the reasons I call it dream work is because it's not, you know, I don't interpret dreams. You know, the client interprets dreams. Mm-hmm. What, what I do as a coach is I use the same skills that we're taught as coaches. I ask questions and I try out stuff. I say, well, okay, you know, you said this to me a little while ago and this is what I'm hearing in this dream. Does this sort of make sense to you? Sometimes the answer is no. Um, but that's, that's why, you know, in my own progression around dreams, coaching was sort of such a relief because mm-hmm. it's, it's not pathology. The, the context mm-hmm. is not pathology. We're not looking at, mm-hmm. oh, this person has a problem. Let me think how this dream, <laughs> you know, is symbolizing what the problem is. Well, we know what the problem is. That's not the issue. Yeah. The, the, the issue That's is great. what is the soul trying to say to expand consciousness? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Cool. 
Ursula, what were you going to, you had a good question, I think, bubbling up in there too, didn't you? Um, well, I've got so many questions. I don't know. I don't know where to start. <laughs> Me too. Um, I was just giving you uh, a chance. Well, uh, I want to. I want. I want to say that um, I have been working uh, with Will on, on on dream interpretation and my dreams because I have always been fascinated about you know what dreams mean because um, just like uh, Will and you and I really do believe there there is a message there for for learning. Um, it, I am just curious about, you know, what has us remember dreams and what has us not remember dreams? I mean, I have dreams mm-hmm. of where I wake up and if I take notes right away, I remember them. And then I know I have uh, dreamt and I wake up and I can't remember what it was. Mm. Mm. Well, okay. So... If you think of conscious life, well, maybe, maybe the best way to think about this is, is a metaphor that uh, you know I use, which is day school and night school. So in day school, we go through life and we learn things. We have experiences, some very pleasant, some not so pleasant, uh, and we we gain wisdom through our experience. And so that's a that's a from one perspective, perspective we could say, well, that's an educational process. Okay, we learn. Mm-hmm. When we dream, the language of dreams, uh, as best we can tell, first of all, we know dreams are nonlinear. So you may appear as, you know, 22 years old in your dream, uh, or your children may appear as much younger than they were, or you may appear as old as you are. So dreams play around with time, and they rearrange your biography. And in rearranging their biography, there is well, this is, this is a theoretical construct. There's a message that they're trying to give. They're saying, mm-hmm. pay attention to this part of your life, how you felt then, and understand it in the context of where you are now. So when we remember a dream, the, the, the edit, there's an editing process. So Ursula, when you remember a dream, there are some images or some feelings that there's no way to translate into your conscious mind. And there's no way to translate mm-hmm. into... The, you know, the English language, because that, that's what we're mm-hmm. all speaking here, right? So, mm-hmm. but you create a narrative and the narrative, you know, reflects the, the, the dream to organize your biography. You get that down. Um, but it's, I always use the metaphor. I used to be a photographer and I used to develop my own film. And so there was the, the, the process of taking the image and developing the film and making a contact sheet and then getting a print and then seeing what I actually took an image of. And that I think is sort of the process of getting a dream into your conscious awareness. Mm-hmm. They're ephemeral. They really are like tissue paper. So yes. you have to, you know, you have to have an intention. And so yep. when you say, how do we, re- you know, how do we remember our dreams or, or why do we dream? I would, argue, I would suggest that we always dream. Uh, now, chemically, we, we, you know, that we can induce states of sleep where we block dreams, and we can talk about that, you know, in terms of 40 years ago in, in psychiatric hospitals. But, but most of the time, we do dream, and it's simply an intention to remember. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I yeah. can I add something else here, and then I want to ask about that. What happens when we don't dream? And because I think this is really interesting in terms of who we are in our in our mental health. But mm-hmm. I want to add something that I found that I think sort of the what I thought before I started really researching this, and is that we dream during REM sleep, mm-hmm. and that's one of the really critical things. You got to get your REM cycles in because that's when you dream, and you know that's one of the evidence that you know we know if you don't get enough REM cycles, you're you know, more tired, etc. What I found is that the research seems to be that we dream during non-REM sleep as well, and we go through cycles of REM and non-REM, and there's a different chemical activation, and the dreams are of different types. And we're much more likely, so the REM dreams, we get more disconnected fragments. Things bounce around more. They don't tend, you know, Ursula has said to me, your dreams are like movies. And often the dreams I remember, if I look at this research, seem to be coming from non-REM sleep, where they may not still make sense, but there's a little more of a plot. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I'm taking is I think those are coming more from a non-REM stage of sleep. And it may depend somewhat on how many stages of sleep you had, at what point you woke up, whether you were awoken abruptly. You know, did you wake up right after a REM cycle? Did you wake up in a non-REM stage? Mostly it looks like we wake, you know, fairly soon. Um, we wake after REM with a little bit of non-REM. We're about... According to the research, this is what I found, we're about 80% likely to be able to remember these REM disconnected fragments and only about 50% likely to remember the non-REM. Hmm. So mm-hmm. it's just sort of interesting when I think about the mood, like the times that I wake up and it was a movie and there was mm-hmm. a plot. And, and then the times are like, I don't know, I was in India and then the next thing I know, I was in Costa Rica and and people had beans on their heads. I mean, it's just, you know, like random stuff. Well, um, okay. Yeah. So if we look at it from from sort of the dream work perspective, that's interesting because there really are sort of two different types of dreams, uh, at least that I think about. You, I mean, you can read books, there are 15 different types, but <laughs> just, just from what you're saying, right? So there's one type where you will get an image. So mm. perhaps perhaps it's a cocopelli appears in your dream. Cocopelli is a is a, uh, a Native American southwestern trickster. You've probably all seen him. He's got sort of the curved back, plays a flute. Um, so that symbol may appear in a dream without much of a plot. And all it's saying is, okay, there's an image of a trickster. Now, when you have a dream that has a plot, when we look at that dream, we tend to see that dream more as transformational. There's a process Mm -hmm. that your soul is taking you through saying, okay, here's the beginning, here's the middle, here's the end. So when I was talking to you about that artist dream, artist dream, uh, the repetitive Mm -hmm. dream she was having, there was a plot. She kept trying to get back in this relationship. She kept being told no, okay, um, mm-hmm. versus seeing an image. Um, mm-hmm. The images are useful mm-hmm. because they're usually, and again, you know, there's no, by the way, there's no rules in dream work. There's kind, mm-hmm. of, there's, there's kind of working hypothesis. So usually when you see a symbol, um, it's kind of a, a road sign that says, you know, big bump up ahead or something, you know, something's coming and it's may have something to do with this image. It's just the kind of thing you listen to, you sort of tuck away and say, okay, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to watch 
see if that makes sense. Sometimes it doesn't. Uh, sometimes you may dream about numbers and they don't seem to make any sense. And sometimes they'll appear, sometimes they won't. So, Well, you know, the other thing that's sort of interesting as I'm thinking about this research on the REM and the non-REM sleep, and, and again, I don't believe that we're just a walking soup of, um, you know, biochemicals that are making us do things. But I think it's sort of interesting to say, oh, there are, if I have a, if I have an emotion, there's a certain biochemical response. If I induce that biochemical response, I can actually sort of induce that emotion. It's sort of interesting. Um, but I believe we're bigger than that, that who we are as a soul just holds that. But what's interesting is these two different types of sleep have a different chemical activation, you know, having to do with a chemical that inhibits versus one that excites. And so you get more of the excitatory in REM sleep and more of the inhibition in non-REM sleep. So it's sort of, uh, uh-huh. or you get excited you, at any rate. It's a little more complicated than that. But at any rate, it's sort of like interesting to say, oh, these chemicals may also have play a role in what, you know, what images happen, how linear the dream uh-huh. is. That doesn't mean it's just a chemical response, but there's some way that that our I, I really think that our, our our soul or what's deeper and bigger about us more than just the brain itself is using this. You know, it's part of the mm. it's part of the process. It's part of how how it works, but not limited to that. Okay. That'd so, be my belief. Yeah. So so let's take that idea and, and sort of talk about what's the point. Um, yeah, what's the dreams. point? Why do we dream, Will? <laughs> right. and why, should so, we under, why should we understand our dream? What difference well, does it make? Well, I mean, the idea about working with dreams is that you create a stronger dialogue between day school and night school. In other words, you, mm. your, your dreams inform your waking life and your waking life informs your dreams. And mm. so in the context of what you're talking about, you know, like why an image, why a narrative, etc. It's because of that dialogue, because of that energetic exchange between the dream world and, and the conscious world. And so that's sort of at a, at a macro level. Then when we talk about working with dreams, um, there is, and, and I'll use the word alchemy because it's a science. It was a science and it's arguably still a science. It's a transformational metaphor. So what happens when you tell a dream? There's an energetic exchange between you as the dreamer and the listener. And, uh, you know, I think, I think I've said this to you before, you could have an eidetic memory and you could go out and tell somebody within five minutes, exactly what you said and exactly what the coach said. And there's no way that you could replicate that energetic exchange. It is unique. And in that moment, in that telling to that individual because clients choose the coach they work with as the listener. Um, That's where transformation happens. That's where the alchemy happens. That's where the magic of dreams happen. And I would argue it's not just in dreams. We all have the experience Mm. of sitting in a session with a client and magic happens, Mm. you know, in an exchange. Uh, Or with a friend, you know? yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, my, if I have any mission at all in terms of, of, of talking about dreams and, 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 and offering it as a tool for coaches, is it's basically to say, this is not some separate, you know, ivory tower. You have to have, you know, certain credentials to be able to do this. No, you, you need to be who you are as a coach. And 
And, uh, you know, one of the things that is sort of electrifying about it, being a coach is you have no idea what's going to happen. Well, you have, no <laughs> idea what, you, know, you have no idea what's going to happen when you listen to a dream either. Um, Ideally, well, you have no idea that's what's going to happen. What's going to happen? Yeah, Ursula. Go ahead. Yeah, well, uh, you know, looking at my own uh, example, you know, of the dream that I shared with Will, and then uh, him asking, you know, questions about it, and and really looking at, you know, the, you know, what is happening in the dream, and you know, who am I in this dream? It really, what it, what it can reveal, reveal and what it already did reveal for me, that there are some, you know, I think the way I see it is that looking at dreams and the, the coaching of dreams, the analysis of dreams, if you want to call it that, it can reveal some underlying, you know, structures of, you know, motivational and emotional sort of forces that I'm not aware of in day school, but that night mm. school reveals in images and in, mm. you know, in, in, in images and, and feelings that day school either covers up or, you know, it just doesn't give me this really interesting um, new view on whatever is going on, you know, emotionally in my life. Like I just very, very quickly and without going, you know, into the details of the dream, but I I said to uh, Will, I dreamt about a skier flying off a mountain, landing, slapping in front of me with face down in the snow. <laughs> and the funny thing was this skier was wearing a helmet and he landed in front of me and I thought it, the, 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 the skier was dead. Wow. And I uncovered him, you know, sort of gently moved the snow from away from his body. And I said, and I heard it distinctly in my dream, I said, it's okay now, you are safe. Mm. Well, for me, that is, you know, then now, you know, working with, uh, with Will, well, what the heck does that mean? I mean, that's, mm. that's interesting to me. Mm. There's something so, being revealed in night school. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Oh, gosh, I just feel like I've got so many different directions to go. I want to kind of bookmark this piece about for both um, for the coaches that are listening as well as non-coaches, like how do we get better at, at, at connecting with our dreams? But, Will, when I ask you a question that's been bugging me, and you said something about um, psychiatric hospitals 40 years ago, et cetera, so let me give, give me a little space around this question because the question is around what happens when we don't dream. And right. I think about, you know, different layers. One is we may be dreaming and not aware of it. We may be not in, you know, sleeping so lightly that we don't go into the stage or enough of the stage where we can sleep, either non-REM or REM, or we are actually having our capacity to dream blocked probably by some drug. So what's the psychological impact when we don't dream? What do you know about that? Okay. Um, yeah, well, let me say two things, uh, because I sort of want to also uh, – relate a little bit to, you know, Ursula describing that dream. If you think about dreams as an underground river and that when we remember 
or the dream state as an underground river. And when you remember a dream, essentially what you're doing is you're drilling down into that river and taking a sample. <laughs> and so you can't, you can't see the whole river, but you get a sample. And I'm going to digress. I, w- I will get to the, I will get to the, uh, the, the study on Thorazine. Di- digress then, away. I'm, I'm in the underground river sampling okay. water. That's so cool. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, I did a lot of work. I was a therapist. I was a licensed clinical therapist, and, and I worked at the VA. And then after 13 years of doing that, I eventually wound up for 25 years in corporate America and didn't pay attention to my dreams at all. And then in 2007, I started writing down my dreams. And so I have a 10-year compendium of my dreams of drilling down into the river and what you do and this is what really i mean you keep a dream book the more to write down your dreams you remember it but you keep a dream book really so that you can see the pattern of the message over time mm-hmm. um and you begin to see the creativity of your soul uh of saying mm-hmm. to you hey pay attention to this right mm-hmm. and you sort of get it and you sort of don't get it and then you get a another nuance on the message, et cetera. And so, you know, one of the things I've said is, you know, dreams are love letters from your soul. And so, you know, I think, Anne, you said to me, yeah, but what about the one where I'm covered in poo? You know, that's doesn't seem <laughs> 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 that's my, great soul, love my, soul is, my soul and I are having a toxic relationship. And, you know, really what you say to that is, well, you know, there's an idea about what is love. Well, love is perception. When you feel seen, when, a, when one feels seen, one feels love. And the more you are seen, the depth of that scene is the depth of that love. And so what does it mean when, you, when your soul is, is, is giving you this love letter? Well, your soul is like a lover. You can't see your whole body. Your lover can see your whole body, it's sort of in the physical state. Your soul can see the totality of, of the amazing aspect of who you are as a human being. And so, but love is based on truth. And Mm. so sometimes the message is uh, you may want to pay attention to this because this is an aspect (laughs) of you that, that probably is an aspect of, of what we call an unlived life. Right. Mm. So the question is not, gee, this is a crappy part of myself. No, this is a part of myself that I'm not owning, that I'm not, I, I'm not expanding into. Um, so, can I know, just say that, something, Will? Yeah. This is such a beautiful. It's it, it's just such a beautiful um, explanation of the importance. Um, um, and one of the things that really is standing out for me is the honoring that and taking the time with it. And I think in our busy life, this is where a lot of people get stuck and, you know, just sort of like I don't have time for my dreams and, you know, or even just I don't have time to sleep. And, you know, but I, what you're saying is sort of this unlived life. And what I'm hearing is by taking time with our dreams, whether it's, you know, self, you know, listening to ourselves around the dreams or, you know, even you know, having somebody there who can help by listening to and asking those questions and helping us understand more deeply, you're really talking ultimately about living a more full, rich, and transformed life. Yeah, and I think, you know, let's, let's go to the alternative, which is, you know, really what you asked, which is what happens yeah. when, we don't, when we don't dream. Well, my, my, yeah. first, my first experience of that was, 
in the early 70s, uh, there was a guy who was getting his PhD in psychology. And he, at the time, Thorazine was sort of the drug of choice in psychiatric hospitals. It was uh, a very primitive uh, antipsychotic. Sort of and, makes me think of one flew, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yeah, Everybody's absolutely. just sort of, yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. and, and, and what's interesting about that, that movie and that state is, yes, you load somebody up with Thorazine, they turn basically into a vegetable. They really mm-hmm. can't function. Now, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not uh, panning every psychiatric drug. I mean, you know, there are drugs that we, we, we want people in painful psychotic states and, and they've advanced with the drugs, et cetera. But one of the things that happened in the seventies is they would load people up with Thorazine. And one of the things they discovered is Thorazine prevents stage four sleep. Yeah. Stage four sleep. Right. So people were not dreaming. Um, mm. And what this guy's, thesis was, and what I saw in adolescent kids that they did this to, is you would get a period of sort of the zombie state, and then you would get a ratcheting up of the violence. So what's the response? More Thorazine. Uh. You would get a zombie state, and then you would get a ratcheting up of the violence. So the theory was that what's happening here is that the ability to dream is really an energetic release particularly if you're in, you know, if you're in a psychotic state, it's a way of symbolizing rather than acting. And so dream work in those, in those kinds of, of states would have been useful. Um, right. So they had and, to release this energy somehow and they did it in day school rather than in night school. Right. So now you take, you know, the average person who is got no time for dreams um, you're going to dream anyway. Your soul, <laughs> your soul is going to insist that one way or another, you expand into who you are. And that's where, you know, we get into the ideas that, you know, that come from, you know, my tradition, which is the Celtic tradition, or you can look at a lot of, you know, Native American traditions. And I'm sure there are many others. I'm just not aware of them. Where we have this, this concept of the trickster, and the trickster is different in dream work than the saboteur. I know we use the word saboteur in a different way in, in, in coaching sometimes, but I want to draw a distinction. Mm-hmm. So a saboteur is the experience of the narcissist, okay? Because eventually the saboteur smashes the ego. It's just that's the path. You know, if you're that self-centered, eventually life will conspire to take you apart. What the trickster is, is the trickster creates chaos. It frustrates the ego. Why? Because you're so stuck in your thinking about the way life is and who you are and what you're going to do that you're not really paying attention to who you really are and what you really need to do. So Mm. the trickster will create problems for you. Um, And one of the aspects of doing dream work in somebody who's in that kind of situation is it becomes even more illuminating. Like, why is this happening to me? You know, well, it's happening to you because your soul is trying to say to you, look, you know, being a master of the universe is really not what you're about. Mm. Um, and mm. uh, so, so, you know, I'm, I'm not sitting here trying to say, if you don't dream, you know, God's going to get you. That's, that's you're, not the point. You're screwed. <laughs> you're in <Yeah>. trouble. <laughs> it's, it's just, you know, it's kind of, it comes with a package. So why not pay attention to it? You know, it's there. Uh, yeah, it can, it's a human 
it's a human thing and yeah. and there are cultures that have you know there are cultures that really embrace it as part of yeah. that are more integrated between day and night school and I was thinking about, you know, just thinking about a couple of things. One is, you know, back to neuroscience, the left hemisphere and the task positive network, you know, both of which we talk about and teach in our program. And and combined, they sort of keep us in this go, do, analyze, linear, look at the details, not the big picture. And they really keep us out of understanding greater meaning, making bigger connections, you know, finding our soul's purpose, understanding how values fit. And I think dreams are pointing us more, you know, some of what's happening, and the the research isn't totally clear on this, but default mode gets more activated at night. It gets very activated in the part, in the stage just before sleep and just before waking, where, and that's a really rich place for us where all sorts of interesting connections are being made and, you know, deep memory is getting activated. And and there's some evidence that this may also be, that default mode may get activated um, in deeper stages of sleep, but for sure we know it happens on those edge, those edge times. And this is the place in our brain where inspiration lives, where the hmm. aha moment lives. The aha moment doesn't live in you sitting there doing your spreadsheet. That's great. I think having the talent to do a spreadsheet is a great thing, really helpful. What's the budget? What are we doing? But it's not where inspiration lives. And so I think also you know, the pace of today's life keeps people's brains out of the places where, even in day school, where um, real resonance and meaning are hanging out. You know, as you're talking, I'm, I'm reminded of, and I don't, I don't, I don't have the studies documented, but um, you know, what you were saying earlier, if you get rest in between studying and, and I had an experience uh, and then I read the studies later. Um, I was worked by well, the first building I ever worked on was uh, on 54th Street and 6th Avenue. And MoMA is right across the street. And at the time, the water lilies were on display. Well, I had no idea how to put up a building. I didn't have a clue. And so I would go to work and I would try and figure it out. And at some point, my brain would just go on tilt. <laughs> and I walk, I walk across the street, sit in front of the water lilies, Monet's water lilies, for about 15 minutes. Yeah. And something would happen in my brain where everything would sort of calm down mm-hmm. and I went back to work and I could figure out the next thing to do. So I don't know exactly the neuroscience of that, but I know the experience of that, which is that you mm-hmm. allow yourself to be in a different state. And, yeah. you know, by allowing yourself to be in a different state, magic happens or it feels like magic. Let me put it that way. Yeah. Ursula, what what do you want to make of that? I love that story. I think that's so cool. Well, there's you know there's two things that we knew that we do know from neuroscience, and and you pointed uh, pointed at that already, Will, by saying you became calmer, and when our brain is calmer, and we can switch off some of the you know internal chatter and distraction, the new information will come. Um, and Anne was uh, referring to the default mode network, and that's another part. I mean, you can literally feel it. I can feel it when the the more reflective 
dreaming, daydreaming now, part of my brain is activated because I am really, I'm going into a softer space. Um, it is more inspirational. And yes, I do need, you know, the, the, I need the other network to be activated because there are tasks to be done and spreadsheets to be made, etc. But there is this beautiful spaciousness of the default mm -hmm. mode network as you're gazing at the painting. And I think it does mm -hmm. make sense to me, and that uh, during sleep, um, there is more activation in the default mode network um, because I'm also thinking of that n neural network as the narrative. Mm -hmm. And I think for me at least, what shows up in dreams is somewhat of a narrative. I just need a translator to help me translate that. Or I would say, Ursula, I, I would say, um, I would say, I don't know, translator doesn't, you need someone to listen to the narrative of your dream and ask you if certain things make sense. So it's, it's, uh, and I'll tell you why I'm reacting to translate. It, and it's it's just a choice of words. It, may, it might just be semantics, Will, yeah, it's, because it's, I think is, we're, meaning, we're meaning the same thing. Yeah. And you have to remember you're not talking to English as a first language kind of person. <laughs> <laughs> I know. English is so good. I, I, I want to follow the thread a little bit. I mean, you know, my business card says Anamkara before it says coach. So Anamkara is Gaelic for soul friend. The Celts felt that every person should have a soul friend. And, mm -hmm. and so you're absolutely, you know, as you, just as English is the second language with you, I come from something that I'm reacting to, right? I come from the, the label of therapist where I was supposed to know something, you know, I was supposed mm -hmm. to be a healer from the standpoint that I knew something that the patient didn't. And, and so the reason I've, I've sort of adopted that mode of work and that, that um, that nomenclature is that it puts it very much in the in the in the coaching language and in, and for me it puts it very much on a we're in this together as peers. I have a job. It's different from your job uh, in the relationship. Your job is to, to tell the dream, but we're in it together from the standpoint that I'm just going to use all the tools I know of to elicit from you your own translation of what yeah, and that's exactly that, what I meant. I know. I, I know. 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 And so I think about in the process of, of working with someone around a dream, what I'm doing is I'm putting, so, I'm sort of differentiating it. I'm saying, oh, that's what happened. And in the process, you know, first I'm going to write it down. Um, and this does seem to be really critical, and Will can tell us in a moment why that is. And then better, you know, if I can talk with someone about it, and that, that starts putting some clarity around it. And when I have clarity around it, I can integrate it and that's also then I think part of the conversation is, okay, what is the bigger thing this is telling me? But it's the differentiation and linkage that's part of, that is what I think both of you are meaning by translation, yeah. that I want to I wanna have this become part of me um, so I have to kind of pull it out and highlight it first. 
Um, I wanted to say something else that I've noticed and is that, you know, coaching and, and often traditionally, so I get on the phone, the three of us are coaches. Not everybody listening to the call is. Maybe you've worked with a coach. And so the very tradition is like, okay, what's your topic today? What's your issue? Let's go. All right. You know, good. You, you know, you're trying to plan a party for your dad's 60th birthday and, you know, your sister's being a pain in the ass. Okay, let's get this handled. And what I've become really aware of is dream work isn't like that at all. Mm. There isn't like this crystal outcome that now you're ready to action. So can you talk a little bit about that, Will, and sort of the process and the patience of working with dreams? Well, uh, yeah, but let, let, let's also stipulate that, you know, the client sets, sets the agenda. So if they would come in and they want to talk about the birthday party, that's what we do. Um, right, yeah. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, dream work is like – so in the school I went to, we call them pathways. I think you guys call them principles. It's a, it's a, it's a tool. And what happens uh, with any of the tools, but particularly with dream work, uh, when you start to work with them, that tends to be what the client shows up with. Um, Because dreams are very seductive. Uh, Dreams are mystery. Um, They're, they're like any kind of relationship that you begin to get into. It's like, Oh my God, who is this? You know, let me, so, uh, and, and I think it's useful initially, at least when you start working with dreams, you know, assuming that the client is, is amenable is that that's what you focus on because you begin to build like any one of these other principles or pathways, you begin to build an understanding of what you're doing. Uh, you know, we used to say a lot in, in coaching school, we train our clients. Okay. Mm. This is, you know, I, 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 because I'm so much into the peer relationship, I get a little worried about that, but it's sort of true. It's like, you know, this is a way that we can begin to understand, you know, your larger purpose. So to your point, you know, when you work with the dream uh, and one of the things in coaching that's kind of standard is we say, well, most of the work takes out, takes place outside of the session. This is a little bit different kind of work because what I will ask people to do is, you know what, during the course of the week, but during the course of the week, go back to that dream. Just let yourself feel into the dream. Just sit still for like three to five minutes. Don't have to come up with any solution or interpretation. Just let yourself go back into that feeling. Because, Mm. you know, just as, and this is my language and it's not neuroscience, but just as the water lilies kind of got me to a place where I could begin to say to myself, oh, okay, there is actually a way for me to understand this whole thing. Um, the more you will sort of revisit those feelings, the more they will inform you and Mm. sort of the more robust your experience becomes in life. And, and so we, we sort of talk about the idea that you, over time, you begin to walk through life as, as the dreamer, not that you're stumbling around walking into walls, but that you are allowing, (laughs) you know, but you're allowing yourself the access to those messages and feelings that are going to make you more robust as a human being. Mm. That's beautiful. Really, uh, it, yeah, just, um, I just wanted to say, well, that um, really um, the, the, the way I am seeing this also is that dreams have 
you know, are an, how shall I say this? So when working with clients and working with people, I know how important it is for them to get information through pictures and metaphors. And mm-hmm. that requires patience because not everybody, you know, likes to go there. And no. so I think dreams are another layer um, that help that help people tap into something that maybe in daily life it's it's not their regular way to operate. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Guys, this I just feel like we could talk for another hour or, or days about all of this and what a rich conversation, just looking that it's becoming top of the hour. A um, couple of things. We're going to talk about what's coming up for Be Above. Um, Will, how, if somebody wanted to work with you or work on their dreams, like if they wanted to work with you as a dream coach, how would they go about doing that? Um, probably the best way is, uh, just go on my site, willsharon.com, um, and, you know, send me an email, give me a call either way. And, uh, we can talk about what you want to do and how we could structure it. I mean, I do have a, a practicum that, um, I'm using right now, which is six individual sessions working with a coach. And the way it works is the coach brings their dreams and we use their dreams um, as an illustration of basic principles about how to work with dreams as a coach. Oh, so coaches who are already trained as coaches can learn, can add this to their practice, like another pathway or another principle, sure. going through their own dreams, and then you'll sort of help them bring that into their practice. Right, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Or, you know, if people just want to work with their dreams, I'm happy to do that too. Great. Ursula, what's coming up in the Be Above world? Oh, goodness. Um, We are having a um, a couple of um, series starting for our advanced coaching program. So this is neuroscience, consciousness, and transformational coaching for the experienced coach. We have a series coming up in Minneapolis um, this fall. Um, a little bit sooner, um, in July, I think it is, uh, end of July, a wonderful program for non-coaches, which we call Human Development Program in the beautiful Santa Fe um, area where Anne lives. All the information on all our programs, both for coaches and non-coaches, is available on our website, beaboveleadership.com. Um Anything else, Anne, that you want to add? I would would just say if you've got any questions about any program that's coming up, you can find Will, again, at willsharon.com. And uh, you can email me or Ursula, Ursula at theaboveleadership.com and at theaboveleadership.com if you want to play in the world of dreams or neuroscience or the seven levels of effectiveness. And thank you all for listening. And Will and Ursula, this has just been so fun. And thank you both for being such great um, conversation partners. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for everybody for listening. Thanks, Will. Thanks, Anne. Um, and we'll we'll talk soon. Oh, great. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Bye bye. Bye bye, everybody.